This is the message given by Dr. David Van Drunen during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for May 28, 2023. The title of the message is A Sojourner's Prayer. It's good to be with you again this evening. We are turning back to Psalm 119, picking up where we left off, which is at verse 145. Sermon text is verses 145 through 160, the next two stanzas. So here again, the word of God. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Sends our reading of God's word. Well, we know from reading the scriptures that uh, throughout history, God's people have prayed. We read already in Genesis 4 that people began to call on the name of the Lord. And yet, it's also the case that we who live under the new covenant, we have many privileges in prayer that even the old covenant believers didn't have. You might remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples, from now on, you will pray in my name. That's something that we do that the old covenant saints did not do. And we know that our Lord Jesus has ascended to heaven and that in our own human nature, he is seated at God's right hand and is praying for us. So while we offer up prayers on earth, Jesus is praying for us before his Father in heaven. That's a privilege that the Old Testament saints didn't have. And of course, we live after the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit has been poured out in extra abundant measure. And the Spirit helps us to pray, as Paul uh, tells us in Romans 8. That's another privilege uh, that we have beyond the old covenant saints. And yet, even as we acknowledge that, we want to be grateful for these 
these privileges we have under the new covenant, yet we learn so much about prayer from the Old Testament, and especially from the Psalms. The one way to think about the Psalms is a big book of prayer. It teaches us how to pray to the Lord. And Psalm 119 is uh, certainly a great example of a psalm that teaches us much about prayer. Uh, That's true of the whole psalm. But as we look at uh, these stanzas before us this evening, especially the Kof stanza, but the Reich stanza that follows as well, we find the psalmist focused on prayer in some special ways. And so I would encourage you to us as we think about this this evening to remember uh, some things I mentioned this morning about the psalmist and his situation. So... The psalmist tells us that he is a sojourner, and that means that he is away from the promised land. Now, we as New Covenant Christians don't have a promised land, so that doesn't doesn't necessarily, maybe doesn't mean that much to us. But if we put ourselves back in his shoes, the promised land was, well, that was the inheritance that God had given to his people. And it was in the midst of that land in Jerusalem where the temple was. And that old covenant temple was where God had promised to meet with his people. He had promised to dwell with his people there as in no other place on the earth. It's there that the priests ministered. It's there that the sacrifices were offered. It's there where the throne of David was. This was a special place. And now... This psalmist had been banished from that promised land. So he is in a distant place. And we know that he's in the midst of persecution. And so this is the situation in which he prays. He's praying away from the temple, away from the place of God's presence. He's praying in the midst of deep trouble. But then we think about this. It's not so different from us, is it? I mean, we have citizenship In heaven, there is a heavenly sanctuary uh, in which Jesus ministers for us, but we're not there yet. We will be there. We belong there forever, but we're not there now. We are sojourners here on this earth. We are, in a way, God is distant from us. Our Lord Jesus is absent from us in a very important sense. And we dwell in a world full of wickedness in which there are persecutors, there are haters of of our Lord and of his people. And so this is the context in which we pray. Our prayers, in that sense, are not that different from this psalmist uh, who writes about prayer for us this evening. So with that in mind, let's look at these two stanzas. As we begin with the Kof stanza, uh, we see in these opening, the opening half of this stanza, verses 145 to 148, uh, the psalmist is, uh, he's really not doing much praying in these verses. Uh, but what he's doing is he's describing prayer. Uh, he's describing his own practice of prayer. And one thing that we note about this, are just the verbs that he uses to describe his prayer. So in verse 145, he says, with my whole heart, I cry. And then in one, verse 146, I call to you, save me. He doesn't just say, I pray, but I cry out, I call. 
And you get the sense that the psalmist, he doesn't envision prayer as sort of passing along certain bits of information to the Lord. He's not sending a memo to God. He is crying out from deep within him. This is a prayer that is emerging from his heart. And this is what prayer is. You know, different, uh, uh, we're all different. And, you know, there are some of us who are very comfortable, it appears, uh, laying out private things from our hearts before other people. And there are others of us who are very private people and are not very eager to share with others what is in the depths of our soul. And that's fine that we have different personalities and different comfort levels with those things. But when it comes to the Lord, there is no point of trying to be private. For one thing, the Lord knows everything that's in your heart already. You can't hide anything from him, so it's just ridiculous to think we could try. But the Lord actually takes delight when we open our hearts to him, when we call out to him from the depths of our being. You might think of uh, 1 Peter 5, cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. And so this is what prayer is. We don't, we don't try to keep things from the Lord. We lay before God what is in our hearts. And we know that he takes delight in that when we do so. Now, another thing that we note uh, from these opening verses of Psalm 119 is that prayer is, it is holistic. I think that's the best word to capture that. One sense in which it's holistic is also in the first verse. The psalmist says, with my whole heart, I cry. This phrase, whole heart, is one that the psalmist has used uh, already in this psalm. Uh, he uses it in the first stanza, uses it again in the second stanza. And in those contexts, he uses it to express the fact that he is wholeheartedly devoted to God and his word. And so what he expresses there earlier is that we are devoted to God, not just occasionally, right? not with uh, a little bit of our effort, a little bit of our energy, but with all that is in us, we seek to serve the Lord. And so he comes back to this phrase with a whole heart, now to describe his prayer. Prayer emerges out of a whole life of devotion to God. It is not disconnected from our entire life of service, but it emerges out of that. And you can also see this, the holistic nature of prayer in, in a time sense in verses 147 and 148. So verse 147, he says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. And then in verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. So whether it's early in the morning, he's praying. Whether it's deep at night, well, he's praying. We might think of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, a very simple phrase, pray continually. Or pray without ceasing, if you want to add, you know, make it a three-word phrase instead of a two-word phrase. And of course, it doesn't mean that we are literally praying every moment. We have many other responsibilities in life that require our attention. But you might think of it in this way, that prayer is something 
that characterizes Christians. If you, imagine you were asked to describe someone that you know, and you just pick out one thing to describe that person. Well, what would you choose? Well, you wouldn't choose something that this person does once in a while. Uh, you would choose something that you see in this person regularly, something that you would say characterizes this person. It gets to the heart of who this person is. And you might say that for Christians, prayer is one of those things. It ought to be one of those things. Birds fly, fish swim, scorpions sting, Christians pray. This is just who we are. And the psalmist expresses this, is that at many times of the day, he is praying to the Lord. It is, you might say, it's a way of life for Christians. We are a praying people. Now, as we think about these opening uh, four verses, you might say that the psalmist sets a pretty high bar. Uh, we might read of what the psalmist says about his own prayers, and we look at our own prayers, and then we might feel uh, a little badly about not measuring up to that. And therefore, the next verse is really very encouraging. Here, the psalmist says, "Hear my." this is verse 149, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice. Give me life. We shouldn't think that the Lord hears us when we pray because we pray with our whole heart. We shouldn't think that God hears us because we pray so often, that our prayers are so eloquent, that our prayers are so godly. Why does God hear us? Why does the psalmist ask God to hear? What's his rationale? Well, he wants, he wants God to hear us because of his steadfast love. It's because of God's grace that he hears us, not because of the righteousness of our own prayers. And that's so important to remember. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 20, the author says that in Christ, God has opened a new and living way into heaven. This is why we approach the throne of grace with boldness. When you think about it, we are creatures. We are dust and ashes. And yet we, we approach the living God, the triune God, the God who is a consuming fire. And to add to that, we are sinners. Why could we come before him? It is because Christ has offered up that one sacrifice for sin and has opened up this way by which God receives us gladly and that we may come with confidence it's interesting, the second part of this verse, it's not, he asked God to hear him not only because of God's steadfast love for us, which sounds exactly right, but he also asked God to hear him because of God's justice. And that might not sound exactly right at first. Um, ordinarily, when we're struck by our own smallness and our own sin, we don't ask God to bring his justice down upon us. And yet you think about it. If Christ has offered up himself for us, if he has offered up a perfect sacrifice for all our sins, if he has been perfectly righteous in our place, it would be unjust for God not to hear us because we stand right before him. 
Christ has earned us a place in his presence. He's earned us citizenship in his kingdom, in his heavenly sanctuary. That's how confident we can be as we approach God. Even in God's justice, he will hear us for the sake of Christ. And now these next two verses, verses 150 and 151. In verse 150, we, uh, we find, in a sense, really the first somewhat negative thing or kind of ominous thing in the stanza thus far. Uh, He says, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. You read Psalm 119 and you never get very far without hearing about his persecutors. They're just, they're always there. They're always lurking in the shadows. At least, sometimes they're right there in front of them, but they're always, they're always at least in the background. They are drawing near. Now you think about this, Uh, Again, in the context that I I encourage you to think about this earlier, he's a sojourner. He is away from the temple of the Lord. God, in a sense, is distant. This is not the way it's supposed to be for Old Testament Israelites, being hundreds of miles away from the temple, wherever he was. And then you add to that the fact that these evil people are drawing near. Here, God, God's temple is far away. But evil people are drawing near to him. People who are far from God's law. That just adds to the ominousness of this. They're far from God's law, but they're drawing near to him. And yet, what does he say? But you are near, O Lord. You are near. So here, as the psalmist contemplates prayer, you can sort of see what's going on in his head. Yes, he's far from the temple. Yes, evil people are drawing near to him. But he prays to the Lord, and in God's steadfast love, as he prays, God is near to his people. In a way, God is far, but in a way, he's not far at all. And this is a privilege that we have. It is not easy being away from our Lord. We should want to be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should want to be in his heavenly sanctuary. That's where we want to worship him. And yet even when we are in a distant country, when we pray, God draws near to us in a way unlike the way he is near us in every other part of life. God is near to his people when they pray. Remember that when you pray. May it motivate you to pray. It may comfort you as you pray. And then the psalmist ends this opening, the first of our two stanzas this evening, with two wonderful uh, things. He says at the end of verse 151, all your commandments are true. And then in verse 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. So two things we see. God's word is true and God's word endures. And those things go nicely together. We live in a world that is full of lies. People tell us lies. It's hard sometimes to determine what's truth and what's false. And yet God's word is true. It is one thing that we can count on absolutely. And yet it's not just true for today. It's not a temporary truth. It's not as if something t- tomorrow something else might be true. Something else might be what you really need. No, God's word is true and it has been founded forever. We can count on God's word today, tomorrow, every day. 
uh, it is that upon which uh, we found our life and our confidence. And so with that, the psalmist proceeds to uh, the second of our stanzas this evening, the Resh stanza. And the psalmist is here at the beginning of this psalm. It, it, it begins on, uh, I guess to use the language I was using earlier, on much more of an ominous note. All right, he just only barely mentioned his persecutors uh, in the previous stanza. The previous stanza was really quite, quite an upbeat stanza, at least by Psalm 119 standards. Uh, there are a lot of stanzas that aren't really all that upbeat, you might say. There, there are many that focus on, on grave things of life. Uh, but that, the Kaf stanza was, f- was full of confidence. And here, the Ray stanza begins uh, on a much more sober note. He's asked God to look on his affliction and deliver him. In verse 154, he says, plead my cause and redeem me. This is interesting to note that the psalmist here uses legal language. This is the language of the courtroom. It's as if he's saying that he has been brought uh, uh, to trial and he's asking God to be his attorney. Uh, what I mean, this may have been literally true for all we know, but uh, maybe it's metaphorical, uh, but he he has obviously been accused. Uh, he feels as though he is on trial. He needs God to defend him uh, in the midst of this. We also see in verse 154 that he asks God to give him life. Actually, three times in this very stanza, he asks God for life. What does that indicate? That indicates that, I mean, his very life is in danger. Uh, he knows trials. He knows sufferings. And he adds to the ominousness of this the stanza in what he says in verse 155, he says, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. He picks up, this almost so often does this that you can see the connections among these stanzas. So remember he has just capitalized on this whole theme of nearness and distance in the previous stanza. He comes back to this again. In the previous stanza, he said these evil people were far from God's law. Here he says they are far from God's salvation. And so here he is, surrounded by these evil people, bringing accusations against him, and they are far from the salvation of God. And so the opening verses, uh, they reflect on the trials of life. And so it's so heartening to see the middle of this stanza. So in an eight-verse stanza, they're all eight verses in Psalm 119, So it's the fourth and the fifth verses, which are the center of each stanza. And so here in the fourth and fifth verses, uh, 156 and 157, in a very poetic way, the psalmist says uh, something that should give great comfort in the midst of these trials that he is soberly reflecting on. Now, in verse 156, the way the ESV translates the Hebrew phrase, uh, it's great is your mercy, O Lord. Uh, The way we might translate that a little more literally is many are your mercies, O Lord. Now, I point that out not to... uh, not to unnecessarily be a stickler for details, 
But I think the point of the psalmist is just slightly different from the way that it appears in the ESV. Now, the statement, great is your mercy, O Lord, that is theologically true, and that should be encouraging for us. But you say that, and what it sounds like is God's mercy is really, really, really big. And in a way, that's true. But what the psalmist is actually saying is not that God's mercy in the singular is really, really big, but that God's mercies are in the plural, and they are many. God's mercies are many. And it's something like what uh, uh, the book of Lamentations uh, sets before us. Of course, you know, speaking of books that focus on the trials of life, Lamentations is, is it. But you may remember, if you're familiar with that book, that in, in the center of that book, in chapter 3, there, there are like these moments of light that are so beautiful. And one of the things that Lamentations 3 uh, says, uh, your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You see, the point there is not how big God's mercy is, but that God's mercy just, it keeps coming again and again and again. There are so many trials of life. There are so many sufferings that Christians face. There are so many enemies uh, that, that oppose our religion. And yet, for every trial, for every suffering, for every opponent, there is mercy of God again and again and again. And you see, this is one, another reason that I point this out is because uh, verse 157, the next verse makes so much more sense when you see this. What does he say in verse 157? Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. He uses the same word in both of these verses. He fortifies us first by saying, your mercies are many. And you see, then he can turn and say, my adversaries are many. My persecutors are many. But it doesn't quite seem so frightening, does it, once we know that God's mercies are so many. We can face the adversities and the adversaries that face us in life because we know that God's mercies are so many. They are just as many. They are more than all the troubles that we face. And so having set that in the center of this stanza, we can turn and look at how the psalmist uh, concludes. And uh, I'll point out in verse, the next two verses, uh, verses 158 and 159, the psalmist, uh, he begins these verses with the same word. Uh, now, again, it, uh, the, the ESV uses different, uh, different words to translate it, which is, which is fine. They're both, uh, they're both accurate translations of this word. Basically, uh, the Hebrew word is the word for see. And so verse 158 begins, I look. And verse 159, consider. Uh, this is actually the third time in this stanza that the psalmist begins a verse with this word. Uh, verse 153, the first verse of uh, the stanza also begins with this word. Look on my affliction. So what the psalmist is doing here is something similar to what I mentioned this morning. All right, so this is the Resh stanza. So it means that every verse begins with the letter Resh. And a very common word that begins, a Hebrew word that begins with Resh is the word for see. And so the psalmist takes advantage of this. And so the theme of seeing is important here. Uh, you might note that 
the first and third times that the psalmist uses this word. So verses 153 and then down to 159, he is praying to God. He's asking God to see. He wants God to see his affliction. He wants God to see how he loves his precepts. Now, just think about that for a moment. One of the things we do in prayer is we ask God to see us. We ask God to see our situation. We ask God to see what we are going through. And the very fact that we do that is an amazing thing when you think about it. If you were not in Christ, if he had not forgiven your sins, would you ask God to look at you In fact, would you keep repeating it? God, look at me. If we were not in Christ, we would be like like the wicked in the book of Revelation who call on the mountains to fall on them, like to hide them from the living God. But what a privilege we have that we can with confidence ask God to see us and know that his seeing us means our deliverance. It means help. Uh, and this is what the psalmist does here. He is calling on God to look at him. And he does that with, with faith. But also note that in the second of these three times, the psalmist describes his own seeing. So it's as if you know, he, he wants God to see him, but yet also that the way God sees him should shape the way that he sees the world. So he says in verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Now, how does verse 158 strike you? We might think, well, looking at other people with disgust doesn't sound very charitable. Ordinarily, we don't, you know, we want to teach our children to look at other people and hold them in contempt. So what is, what's the psalmist getting at here? Well, probably the best way to think about this is the fact that as sinners, we are tempted to look at evil people and be jealous. We can look at evil people and think, wow, they, they can do certain things that we can't do. They can get away with certain things that we're, you know, we know we really can't get away with. And sometimes in our sinful hearts, we envy the wicked. And yet that's not good. Uh, we, we understand that we should not find delightful the things that the wicked find delightful. We should not want to be able to get away with the things that the wicked think they can get away with. When the psalmist says, I look at the faithless with disgust, he's surely, he's not being uncharitable. He's not showing contempt for people. He knows that he himself is a sinner after all. He's confessed that many times in this psalm. But it's a way of saying, Lord, I look at the wicked and I I find their life unattractive. I look at the life of the wicked and I find it, in a way, pitiful, in a way not to be envied. I look at the way the wicked live and it's disgusting. This is the prayer of a righteous person, one who is longing to live according to the law of the Lord. 
And so it's with this that we come to the end of our text uh, this evening, verse 160. And it's really, it's remarkable to look at this last verse because it looks so much like the way he ended the previous stanza. Here again is a link that we find between uh, uh, stanzas. Uh, I noted in verses 151 and 152, the previous stanza ends with two basic affirmations. God's word is true and God's word endures forever. He's founded them forever. And so how does the psalmist end this next stanza? Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. He comes back to God's word and makes these two basic but so important affirmations. It is God's word that we can count on. God's word reveals truth in a world full of lies and it will last you will be able to count on this word as long as you live. And so, brothers and sisters, as we pray, as we call to God from deep within our hearts, uh, may we rest upon his steadfast love. That is our confidence as we pray. And may we remember that his word is true. His word shows us how to pray. His word gives us words to pray. His word gives us confidence as we cry out to him. So let us pray. Lord, our Father, uh, thank you that we may come before you this evening again. And, O oh Lord, uh, we think of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was clearing the temple. He said that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Thank you, Father, that we have come from Uh, from many different places, from many different peoples. And yet here we are this evening, uh, together calling upon your name, uh, lifting up our hearts to you, praying to you, for that is what we do as your people. Uh, Father, we pray that you would sanctify us in our prayers. None of us prays as we should. We pray that you would give us a zeal in prayer, give us persistence in prayer, Give us confidence in prayer. Give us joy in prayer. Give us focus uh, when we pray. And Lord, we ask that as you have promised that you would bless us, your people, as we call to you. Uh, Lord, may your steadfast love encourage us as we pray. May your word give us the guidance that we need as we pray. And so, Lord, It is with this that we join our voices together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.